Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Mickey Tripathy, the new National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, about the state of healthcare interoperability. As part of Patient Safety Awareness Week, this episode is presented in partnership with Vocera, Gojo, the makers of Purell, and Simpler. And now, on to the interview. Hey, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Mickey Tripathi. Uh, welcome, Mickey. Thanks, Jay. Delighted to be here. And we're going to talk today about interoperability. You've been pretty involved with interoperability efforts for a long time now. Um, how, how have you seen um, sort of the state of healthcare interoperability? How, how has it progressed over the last 15 years? Yeah, I mean, well, dramatically, um, almost in, you know, sort of uh, as, as kind of a, a binary thing, meaning 15 years ago, we basically didn't have it. And yeah. now we actually have it. So, uh, so yay! So, <laughs> yeah. That doesn't mean that uh, that doesn't mean that it's great in all its dimensions now, which I'm happy to dive into. Um, but uh, you know, 15 years ago, you know, when I got started, and I can't believe it's it's that long. Actually, it might already be almost 20 years that I've been in, in healthcare IT and interoperability, um, which is just a reflection of how old I am. Um, the uh, uh, you know the work that I started doing was um, in Indiana with the Indiana Health Information Exchange, which is um, one of the, you know, is still the, probably one of the longest running and most successful HIEs in the country. Um, and, uh, and, and so we launched that in like 2001, 2002. And, um, and, you know, so there was interoperability in limited form um, in various pockets then. So you had Indianapolis, um, you had Rhode Island, you had some activity in Massachusetts. Delaware, there were like, you know, six or seven, you know, uh, Cincinnati had some great work going on with, uh, with an organization called HealthBridge. So you had some pockets of really good, um, you know, sort of traction, but, you know, in general, those were very localized, um, unique to each of those geographies. And whereas now, you know, we really do have, um, you know, ubiquitous interoperability available, um, though it's, you know, better in some areas and worse in others, um, which I'm to dive into. Yeah, and and you know, obviously, you know, when you got started, people were still using paper records, and you know, it was, you know, probably hard hard to imagine, you know, where we are today. But you know, what needs to be um, uh, done to improve interoperability? Yeah, I think I, it's a great point that, you know, one of the things certainly that's different now between, you know, between now and 15 years ago um, is that, uh, you know, most most provider organizations didn't have electronic health records, right? So, mm. um, you know, the, the you know, what we did in Indianapolis, for example, was connecting hospital systems that had electronic health records, and they were the only ones who had them. And, and you know, at least half to two thirds of them were homegrown systems. That um, you know that uh, that were just self-built by you know by those hospital systems, um, and so you know you it's really hard to have a phone system if people don't have phones, um, and that's the situation we were in you know 15 years ago. That you want to have interoperability, but if most of the people you want to connect with are on paper, you can't really have interoperability, right? So um, you know, and, and back then you know it was uh, you know we were looking out at a landscape that was kind of barren. And wondering how are we going to get out of this predicament? Where the predicament was, 
that um, you know there was sort of an economic stalemate that the um, which isn't which you know which which isn't different than happens in other industries, which is that you know you kind of had I think of it as like a supply chain problem that you had um, you know let's say you know those like you and me are the ones who are purchasing healthcare now you know our employers do it on our behalf or our health insurers do it on our on our behalf. Um, but it, you know, at the end of the day, we're the ones who are doing it. But we have these, you know, purchasers um, who do it, you know, sort of uh, on our behalf. And for, and for those of us lucky enough to have health insurance, I should. Say. <laughs> um, and um, and so they were the ones who, in theory, they have a supply chain, right? Which is like all the doctors and nurses and uh, hospitals who they contract with to provide care. And that supply chain wasn't investing in technology, and they weren't investing in EHRs in particular because they felt like they were being asked to make the investments, which are non-trivial, right? I mean, now we know, not the dust has settled on this. This was, you know, it's an investment of $40,000, $50,000 per provider um, to get a, a well-functioning electronic health record system up and running. Um, and so they were, you know, they were in the situation where they felt like, well, you all are asking me to make this investment, but I don't get any of the benefits of that investment, right? Because you know, if you think about it from a doctor's office, they're kind of like, well, I can't raise my prices, right? I'm not like a bank where I invest in technology and I can just raise my fees on everyone or, or you know, like Walmart or Target where they invest in systems and they just pass on the cost to their computer, to their to, to the consumers. You know, doctors aren't allowed to charge, aren't, aren't allowed to charge more. They have to right. charge what, um, what, the, what the fee is. And so they were feeling like, well, you're asking me to make that investment. And then all the benefits that you're talking about, you know, lower, you know, um, uh, less redundancy in lab testing, less redundancy in image testing. Well, I don't make money on labs. <laughs> I don't make money on imaging. So all those benefits are going to you, you know, health plan. <laughs> They're not going to me. So why are you asking me to make the investment? So we're, we kind of had this big stalemate, right? I mean, no one was investing because everyone felt like, well, it's the other guy's problem, not my problem. And then finally, you know, I'll fast forward here. Meaningful use came, Medicare and Medicaid, kind of broke the logjam where as the biggest payers in the world, they basically said, all right, fine, we will make that investment um, and we'll share the cost in that with providers so they provide incentives. And now we have, you know, sort of most providers having electronic. So, you know, it really is a very different dynamic now, but in terms of your question now, of, you know, not those systems are connected. Um, what do we, um, you know, what do we need to do to get better interoperability? Maybe I should just lay a little bit of the groundwork of what we have today. Um, you know, we have lots of very focused types of interoperability for very specific use cases um, that that serve various transactional needs, and and you know, and and many of those are you know sort of um, though they may be may not be as efficient as we want them to be, um, they are you know relatively ubiquitous. So, um, for example, lab results delivery, right? We have lab results electronically delivered. By um, by you know most of the lab industry, which you know make, which is made up of you know national labs um, like LabCorp Quest, as well as you know most of it actually is hospital labs. Most people don't realize that, but that's you know HL7 point-to-point -point interfaces, ten gazillion of them all over the country, um, and they are relatively low tech. They're not you know relatively old technology, but they actually work. Um, and so. You know, we get uh, electronic lab results delivery into EHR systems routinely. And for most EHRs, when you set that up, they'll set you up with a lab interface and you're off and running and you're getting them. So that, you know, that works pretty well. Um, electronic prescribing also works really well, actually. Electronic prescribing is probably the runaway success of interoperability when you think about 
how ubiquitous it is, um, and, uh, and and the connection with the with the bricks and mortar uh, you know pharmacies. Um, so that works really well. What wasn't working well for a long time is that basic record exchange. So the use case that everyone has in their heads um, is you know Jay Kumar you know shows up in the emergency department um, and the emergency department doesn't have your records. Right. And they would like to have just your basic record. What are you allergic to? What meds are you on? Right, just basic information. We didn't really have that basic kind of interoperability. Now we actually have the foundation for that um, laid and it's and it's being implemented. So it's really just an implementation question. And so those, you know, when I when I say that, what I mean is you have these nationwide networks, um, Commonwealth, Care Equality, the eHealth Exchange are the three kind of biggest ones all of them nationwide and they overlap somewhat and you know i know which feels confusing but you know the analogy i like to use is you know think of like in the wireless industry you have at&t and verizon and sprint or sprint t-mobile or whatever mm -hmm. the name is now um right they're both they're all national networks they all operate in the same geographies but they you know cover different people right essentially but they're but they are connected so you know if i called you on my cell phone I have no idea whether you're on Verizon or Sprint. I'm on AT&T. It doesn't, actually doesn't matter. Right. Um, so that's how these networks are now connected. They're overlapping. They're national, but they are connected as of about two or three years ago. And so now all the HR vendors are connecting those up. And what they allow is that exchange of basic clinical information um, that, you know, that's a, a called the continuity of care um, document, which has, you know, 22, 23 basic um, uh, you know, sort of data uh, types uh, that that would constitute sort of a snapshot of uh, of Jay Kumar's you know sort of medical record as it exists today. Um, so that's you know that's available in, mo in in most of the major EHR systems now that are being rolled out, and I think that and and those EHR systems that are connected to those networks make up something like eighty percent to eighty five percent of the market. So I think we're in a situation where you know about let's say eighteen months to two years from now, once all the implementation is done, we'll have you know, 80 to 85% of the provider organizations in the country with that basic ability through their EHRs to get that basic kind of information. Um, so that's the foundation. There's a lot to, you know, there's a lot more that we need to do, but let me just pause there and mm -hmm. make sure we're tracking and you don't have any other questions. Um, well, I guess, you know, another question that sort of goes along with that is, um, you know, uh, standardization um, of systems, um, like right now, I, I as I understand it, and I know nearly nothing compared to what you know. Um, there are a lot of different, you know, EHR systems that are out there that aren't always working together perfectly. Um, you know, how how do we sort of get everything kind of on the same playing field? Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a great point, and 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 so. Um, the the way that I would you know sort of describe it is um, is that um, the uh, uh, you know if you think of like a think of like a post office analogy um, and by my post office I mean snail mail uh, right. you know, U.S. post office um, or FedEx um, uh, so um, you know there's interoperability has sort of multiple layers so what I just described is essentially um, you know you can think of there being you know sort of a transport layer and a format layer and what's called a semantic layer or, or the meaning of you know vocabulary layer. And so if we just sort of disentangle that, one is you know sort of a transport layer, which is just 
do I have a standardized way to deliver something from me to you, right? So I want to send something to you, Jay, or I want you know you to send something to me. Do I just have a standardized way where I can do that, where I'm not having to pick up a phone with you and we have to have engineers on the phone figure out how we're going to do that? Um, and you know, and that is what I just described: Commonwealth and care quality. They've solved that problem for sure, so that now they're connected and they can just transport it. The next layer down is kind of format and 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 uh, vocabulary, which you could think of as content. So the analogy would be, well, that's great. Now I can send Jay Kumar uh, a letter. You open it up, and it's in French. And it's like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, darn. <laughs> um, I know a couple of French. Those words. <laughs> so now, so I, I I need to know French, and also I don't. I actually didn't know you were going to send it to me in French, so I'm not really prepared <laughs> to do the translation. Um, you know, so so that's the next that that's the next layers down. Um, and so that's where that this continuity of care document comes into play. So we have the transport and with the continuity of care document, I do have the ability to send you something that you essentially open up the electronic envelope and you actually are able to see, you look at it and you see, oh, okay, here's a section that says allergies and here's a section that says meds and here's a section that says problems. And, and, you know, and that actually is now figured out in these continuity of care documents. So I have that and I have basic coding that's standardized. So, you know, for the most part, um, you know, medications will be in RX norm because those are driven by federal regulations. Um, you know, problems will be in, you know, SNOMED or, or, um, or, or uh, ICD. Um, you know, uh, procedures will be in CPT codes. Those are all defined and they're required um, at a certain level to be um, codified. Labs also are supposed to be linked, but, you know, there's a lot of variation there. And that's what, and that's where you get a little bit into where you know where we haven't tackled all the problems that you're suggesting. So you know, just to draw this analogy again. We've solved the problem of I can deliver it to you, you can deliver it to me. We've solved the problem of I actually can open it up and I can see what's supposed to be there. Like I'm, I can see the allergies, meds, problems, and I can actually see that. Okay, yeah, there's a bunch of allergies there. Perfect, and I can I can recognize those. My system sees those and it understands those codes. But it also in each of those sections, it's got some weird ones. It's got some weird Greek words that, <laughs> for some reason, you didn't tell me there are going to be Greek words, and now I need to figure out what those are. And so that's where we are right now, that there's still a lot of local variation and local optionality that gets sent along in those documents, and you have those other systems still trying to figure that out. So, um, so it's definitely not perfect or complete or comprehensive by any means, but every year we get better and better and better in standardizing those things. Um, and and what's sort of your take on the, the the role of the federal government in you know making these these rules? I mean, uh, obviously we've got a new administration coming in, and you know I'm not sure how that's going to necessarily impact um, you know the world of interoperability. But you know what's what has been the federal government's uh, role in this, and you know how do you see that moving forward? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the federal government just plays a huge role um, in a number of different ways. Um, you know, first and foremost, just, you know, just a basic fact of, you know, of, of, of healthcare is that um, the federal government in some way, shape or form, um, you know, is responsible for something like 60% of all healthcare that gets purchased in the country. And that's, you know, you get to that number by saying, well, if I add up Medicare, and Medicaid, and the VA, and the DOD, and the Indian Health Service, 
and the NASA little mini hospital. You probably didn't know that NASA has uh, healthcare <laughs> providers, but they do. <laughs> and you know, I, I add up all of that, um, and, uh, uh, and and you know, and a bunch of other things that are about healthcare delivery and the government actually, no kidding, either paying for or literally providing healthcare. It adds up to something like you know, sixty percent. So they're a big player. Yeah. Um, you know, just in and of them, in and of itself. And then you add on top of that that healthcare is highly regulated. You know, it's regulated more at a at a, a state level in many ways because licensing happens at a state level, for example, right. not at a federal level. Um, but you know, but uh, but there's also a regulatory component as well. And it's really important to understand those two different different um, types of influence it has. The first is what I think of as really market influence. So you kind of using market muscle in a certain way. Sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes it's inadvertent, but when you make up 60% of anything, whatever you do ends up rippling through the market, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then some of it is regulatory, where they explicitly say, we are going to make rules that this group of people are required by law to follow. So there's, you know, those, those two different aspects. So now back to your question of, you know, what role does, you know, does the federal government play? Um, I think that, you know, federal government plays a really important, important role um, in, in healthcare, which in some ways is unique to uh, compared to other industries, and it's unique because um, in other industries you have, um, you know, if you think about retail banking or retail stores or airlines, um, where they've had a lot of standardization of computer systems, right? I mean, you can go to Home Depot and they have, you know, everything, you know, all of your receipts, and you know, they, uh, what they don't have is what you spent at Lowe's. Um, so, you know, in a way, we make unfair analogies. We think, oh, I go to Home Depot, they have everything. It's like, okay, yeah, ask them what you bought at Lowe's last week. It's like, well, how would they know that? It's like, well, that's what you're asking Mass General to know. <laughs> um, so, you know, so in a way we, you know, we have to remember that we're asking for a higher bar for healthcare, which is appropriate, right? Healthcare is different than money and hammer. So we should, you know, that, that's a good expectation, but we need to just, you know, sort of level set our expectations here. But, um, but you know, but even in areas where we have that interoperability, like in banking, for example, what we had is it wasn't really the federal government who drove it, it was the industry itself, albeit you know, sort of assisted and facilitated by, by the industry. And, but, but in those industries, you have like concentration where either on the supply side or the demand side, you have enough concentration so that if you know, six, seven, eight companies get together and decide, you know what, we need to create a national standard for this. And you know, we'll, we'll do all our antitrust things, trust things so we're not colluding, we'll create some open stand, open industry standards, and then we'll standardize this stuff so we have better interoperability. And that's you know, kind of how banking works, right? With ATM networks and all right. that. It wasn't the federal government that came in and said that they did it. The network, the, the banks themselves said, hey, this is killing us not having this interoperability, so we better figure it out. In healthcare, the unique problem that healthcare has is it's unbelievably fragmented on the demand side and the supply side. So meaning that you know, on the demand side, what's what's the demand side? Well, it's you and me as individual patients, because we're the purchasers at the end of the day. But then, you know, if you roll that up and say, well, that all gets aggregated or funneled into either insurers or employers or both um, who, who do my actual purchasing for me. And while we might, sometimes we think of health insurance as being concentrated, in lots of ways it's really not. Like there are a thousand health insurers in the US. Most people don't realize that there are that many health insurers. And while there are some big Goliaths, you know, like um, like United Healthcare, right? Everyone knows United Healthcare and Anthem and these big companies. They're they're kind of big nationally, 
but small in lots of markets. So for example, in Massachusetts, you know, the biggest health insurers who cover something like 95% of the lives are three nonprofit health insurers that are based purely in Massachusetts, Blue Cross, um, Tufts Health Plan, and Harvard Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like United Healthcare has almost no presence here, and Cigna has you know little presence here. So and, and that's true in other markets as well. So it's like they're big nationally, but they're small locally. So it's really hard for them to drive standardization because there are just too many players for them all to be together. And then what about on the supply side? If you think about the supply side of healthcare, that's the healthcare providers, right? The hospitals, the doctors. Um, and again, that's unbelievably fragmented. So you have like Mayo Clinic, right? They're huge. Um, but they're huge in three markets, right? They're huge in Minnesota. They're huge in Jacksonville, Florida. Just not even the state of Florida. They're just huge in one city in Florida. And they're huge in um, Arizona. That's it. Mass General Hospital. Ginormous company, right? They're their biggest employer in Massachusetts. And that's it. They're just in Massachusetts. So they can't drive scale either, right? Where, where they, if they got together and said, hey, let's get together with six or seven other companies and define standards. It's like, well, great. All of you are geographically isolated and you make up, you know, 3% of the market. So, you know, you're not going to drive standards either. So in that situation where you have fragmentation on the demand side and fragmentation on the, on the supply side, who, who is big enough to cut through all of that? Well, it turns out that it's the federal government, right? <laughs> we're like, well, we're big everywhere. <laughs> Um, Medicare and Medicaid are big in every state. They're big across the country. We're the ones who, you know, who, who have the authority in a way. And I don't mean that in a government, you know, way. I mean it just in terms of market authority to be able to say, you know what, if we do something, that will actually drive the market. Um, and so that was the beginning of, you know, sort of meaningful use where they said, all right, we're going to drive EHR adoption because that'll be across the country regardless of where you are. But then further, as we get into things like interoperability, they're the ones who say, you know what, we need everyone to just use these standards mm-hmm. um, in, in order for you to participate in, in, you know, in Medicare or Medicaid. All of a sudden, that starts to drive the market as well, right? Because everyone's like, well, every doctor participates in Medicare and Medicaid. Certainly, every hospital participates in Medicare and Medicaid. So now, all of a sudden, you've got the federal government playing this enormous role of just creating a common denominator in a way that no other market actor across the country could. Um, so that's why I think the, gov- the federal government's role is very unique in healthcare, but I think it's also re- just hugely important, and we just need to recognize that. Now, as we go forward, and sorry, I know I've been talking a lot. I'll pause here. No, that's you. that's why you're on the program. So, um, uh, Greg, <laughs> uh, so um, the, um, as we go forward, I think one really important thing for us to keep in mind is this is this um, this dual sided nature of, of the government's role that I was describing before, which is the government as market actor versus the government as regulator. And you know, my bias is toward saying, you know what, the government should, um, should, should do everything it can to pull the levers of its market action as a way of driving the industry rather than you know, taking a regulatory stance on everything. Um, because regulatory stance, right, I mean, it's, it's really hard because they're really brittle. Increasingly, we're getting into internet and network technologies and things that are fundamentally dynamic that change really fast. And you don't want the federal government regulating mm-hmm. things that you know that that uh, that the cycle times of change are much faster than the cycle times of the regulations to yeah. respond to them. Right. So you know, so I mean, in certain areas like information blocking, maybe that's okay because that you know that sends a really important signal to the market. But you don't want that to get you know too restrictive. So I think that the government, you know, and the government's doing this, but I think they can probably do more to 
exercise that muscle. So, for example, have the VA and DOD adopt as much nationwide, enough, uh, uh, as much of these nationwide standards as possible, and have their EHR systems, which are now being implemented by Cerner, absolutely conformant as, as, as strictly as possible to these national standards, right? And then they set the example and then tell everyone else, we're only going to interoperate with you if you're very strictly adhering to these standards. And then that ends up driving everyone else because everyone feels like, well, you know, I need to communicate with the VA, I need to communicate with CMS, whoever it is. And so all of a sudden you start raising the bar, again, not through regulation, but just by saying we are going to model what good, good citizenship here is, is in the interoperability. Nice. Um, also wanted to ask you about what the role of interoperability in population health management, especially as we're dealing with, you know, this crazy pandemic we're stuck in. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it's huge. Um, so, and there's a couple of different dimensions to it. I think one is um, that, you know, interoperability isn't population health management, which I think is, you know, you appropriately sort of separate the two, and, you know, and I think appropriately sort of say, what's the role of population health management? I mean, there is sort of, you know, people who kind of merge the two and say, well, if I have good interoperability, then I just have population health management, right? It's like, well, no, you just got a bunch of data, but now what are you going to do with it? Right. <laughs> um, and how are you going to use it for, you know, for being able to deliver real value? So, but on the other hand, I can't have population health management without data, right? So um, I need to be able to have, you know, sort of, and if, and if we parse out a little bit of, you know, what's interoperability? Well, first level, I just need to be able to have as much access to data for those organizations who are responsible for performing those population health management functions as possible. Right? They need to have as much of that as, you know, and as efficiently um, and as high quality as possible. So as all these things that I've been describing, um, you know, that just makes population health management better and better because I have a better data source um, to be able to draw from. But furthermore, as we move more into what is population health management, I think um, that's where interoperability plays a huge role too, because you start to say, well, I want to be able to not only um, take that data, I want to be able to generate analytics um, so that I understand what are the things that might need to be done um, uh, to do to, for different patients to be able to um, help them, you know, uh, get better health and be able to stratify all of that and then be able to, you know, define what those, you know, sort of um, facilitating kinds of things um, are that, uh, that, that could, could help uh, patients get on a better health pathway and then be able to have systems that put that information in front of those who are responsible for working with those patients and ultimately and ideally put that information in front of patients, right? I mean, I think as you know, people have often said, you know, patients are the most underutilized asset in medicine, right? Um, so being able to get as much as possible this information into the hands of patients so that they can um, uh, do as much as they are comfortable doing, um, you know, sort of uh, to, to uh, help to uh, you know, sort of participate in their own care. Um, and so that's where, you know, to me, that's sort of the next frontier as we think about population management. We've, we've got the data and we understand that it'll get better and better. We're trying to make it better, um, but you know we kind of know how that works now. It's really just about how do we improve the quality of it. But now, you know, and we know something about the analytics that you know. Then, um, um, but where we don't have the great, inter the best interoperability now is how do I communicate that across organizations? So, um, if in population management, for example, I'll have accountable care organizations, right, which is like a you know a payment network 
that will take a contract, let's say from, you know, from, from Medicare. And that'll put, you know, a group of providers under a risk contract that says, okay, we're going to pay you some sort of capitated amount of money to take care of these patients. And if you can do it for less than we paid you, um, and, and you do it with high quality, we're going to measure quality, then you can keep the difference, right? And that's the whole model of value-based care. So I should be saved for giving them, giving good care, not for just doing stuff to patients. Um, so, but that often trains, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, extends across legal entities. So you might have a hospital and three, you know, a typical customer for our, for Allidate, for, uh, sorry, for um, Arcadia would be, Allidate is one of our customers. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, a typical customer for, you know, for Arcadia would be like a hospital or a hospital system um, plus 300 to 400 community docs, let's say, all of them on a single contract. So I can have a population health management solution that says, all right, well, I can get data out of all those systems. So now I'm able to see Jay Kumar's record as it exists in those, in that primary care setting and that specialist setting and in the hospital setting. And I can bring all that together so that I get a better profile of Jay. And I can now understand what are the risk areas for Jay? How do we address those risk areas for Jay? Um, but what I don't have great interoperability on yet is how do I sort of, you know, from my system, communicate easily to that primary care physician, let's say, who may be on a different system, you know, I have put Jay on the asthma registry and the other, this other registry, right? And that's an important thing to be able to communicate because how does the primary care physician know that, you know, we have done the analytics and we have determined that Jay, you know, sort of qualifies for these two things that we think would require special treatment in certain ways. Um, so that's, that's, you know, sort of the, the part that we still um, need to figure out, um, which is the next step. It's not a failure. I think it's just as we get more mature, we think of, well, what are the next set of things we want to do? Um, and then also being able to say, how do I communicate with Jay easily? Right. How do I get that app onto your device so that it says to you, hey, Jay, you know, we think that you actually are relatively high risk for, for asthma. We put you on the asthma registry, and here is an app that you can use to better manage your asthma. And if you're willing to do that, That'll connect up with us, and now we can have a nice, you know, sort of synchronized back and forth exchange that you can put in information that's important to your condition and what your status is, and then we can have a system that responds to that and pushes back to you information that might be helpful to you as, as you um, as you deal with that in your day to day life. Um, and how long do you think it'll be before we kind of solve those communication issues? I mean, it seems like things are actually moving fairly quickly these days. Obviously, you know, the pandemic has uh, certainly pushed telehealth into the forefront um, in a way that it never has been before. So um, do, do you see sort of uh, solutions coming along fairly, you know, in the next year or two or? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, Jay, you haven't mentioned the, the magic word fire. Um, <laughs> I don't know how we got so far into this uh, yeah. without, you know, fire or blockchain. Just kidding. No, I don't want to talk about blockchain at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's why I didn't. Yeah, but fire, I'm happy to talk about. So fire, I think, is, you know, is sort of the next frontier or the next chapter of interoperability. And that's what enables this, you know, this much more agile, facile, modern um, app API kind of ecosystem that provides that kind of tailored capability um, that you can have in your hands as a patient or another provider to be able to have very focused kinds of capabilities and information sharing. And so, 
uh, you know, and fire is, you know, for those who don't know what fire is or, or why they should care. Um, the reason anyone should care is because it basically puts interoperability in uh, using the same conventions that you're used to when you're on Facebook or I shouldn't say Facebook because <laughs> all the issues with Facebook, but you know, but Twitter, Instagram, social TikTok, um, social media. I mean, not only social media, but Amazon, um, you know, Best Buy, anything that you do using browser-based technologies is basically using the standard that is um, the basis of Fire, which is a RESTful API. Um, and so we all should want interoperability to get more and more in line with the way that the rest of the internet works, just because that is a proven model and it works really well and it's very um, uh, sort of agile in many ways. And it also enables apps. It enables other people to come in and develop really cool focused apps um, that can help people with their individual needs. Um, and, and right now with, you know, with the federal um, sort of regulatory process, as I you know, talk about the importance of the regulatory process, um, the recently released rules from ONC um, require that EHR vendors make available Fire APIs, so-called Fire APIs, which is basically like an interface or a connection point so that patients can um, bring an app or can use an app of their choosing as long as it meets the technical specification of that API, which the vendor is required to openly publish. And so as long as their app meets the technical requirement um, of that uh, of that uh, um, that API, um, which has to be you know conformant to this national standard, this fire um, API, then the um, that vendor and that provider organization are required to allow the patient to connect. So if you have asthma, for example, you can find an asthma app and say, hey, as long as it's compliant with that Fire API, I, I'm, I'm able to connect it. Now I can get my own data and start to do cool stuff um, you know, using that app. And conversely, if you have diabetes, you can just do the diabetes thing or, you know, or whatever it is. So we're actually at the beginning of that next, that next chapter. What has to happen is the rules need to, be, need to go into force um, because the rules have been um, articulated and finalized and published. One of the challenges that we've had now with COVID is they got pushed out, um, understandably in some ways, because we're in the middle of a you know a, a generational crisis. So provider organizations, as we know, are doing you know heroic things to just take care of people. Um, right. But you know the implication of that is that what um, what was supposed to go into force, you know, 24 months after the rule was published in May, just this past May. It's now pushed out another, you know, nine months. So these things aren't um, technically required in EHR systems until December 31st, 2022, which is, you know, two years away, which is unfortunate because the law, the 21st Century Cures Act that was that required all of this was passed in December of 2016. <laughs> President Obama signed it. That's how long ago it was. Wow. Um, and, and we're only now seeing, you know, so it took four years or three, you know, over three years to get it instantiated rule. The rule said you have another two months, you know, two years to implement it. And now with COVID, we're actually pushing it out almost another year. So, you know, it's like the law got passed and we're sitting here saying, oh my God, it's going to take us now, you know, seven, eight years to get all of that great stuff implemented. Um, so that's a little bit of the frustration. So, that, you know, the, the foundation's laid, the blueprints are there. Um, all the all the regulations have passed. So I passed all the zoning boards and everything. <laughs> I just need permission. To, I just need permission to build the darn house now. <laughs> well, Mickey, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me today. This is really really great.
Great. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm delighted with the conversation and, you know, look forward to continuing in the future. Thanks. All right. Thanks. That wraps up episode 24 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. I want to thank our partners, Vocera, Gojo, the makers of Purell, and Simpler. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.